0: Good morning. Look at you guys. Dave, there are more people here than I thought there were. Look at this. You guys are dedicated. We didn't know what to expect. You know, it's it's, uh, New Year's Day, and uh, some of you might have gone to bed late last night. Some of you might have enjoyed last night. And so we didn't know how many of you guys were going to be here today, but here you are. And to all of our online guests, we welcome you. And to all of the people who didn't get up this morning but are watching later in the week, we also welcome you. Um, I am excited to be able to deliver today's message. Um, Today's message is a little different. See, we're starting a new series next week. And it's a series I'm actually really excited about, Dan. It's a series entitled, Snarky Jesus, When Jesus Gets an Attitude. Which I don't know if you've ever had this moment where you're reading through the Gospels and you see Jesus do something and you're kind of like, dude, kind of a jerk there. Anybody had that moment before? And we're going to take four of those instances, and me and Dan, we're going to break those down. We're going to talk about why Jesus appears to have an attitude, why he appears to be a little bit snarky. But that starts next week. Uh, We wanted to do just like a one-off this week, just a a single message to kick off the year. And uh, and so I got to come up with the theme of that. Uh, And so today's message is entitled, Holy Hangover, The Least Baptist Sermon Ever. Uh, Because what we're going to do today is we're going to be talking about a wedding in the Bible that does not fit the standards of uh, Baptist life. It contains a little wine, a little alcohol, the devil's juice, the nectar of the demons. Um, But first, I'd like to tell you about the first wedding in my life. I was four, 1987, I believe, and my aunt was getting married and I was chosen being the ring bearer, big responsibility. If you're wondering what I looked like back then, this is the picture of it. So, yeah, I know, I know. I just got cuter. <laughs> um, no, so anyway, that kid right there was supposed to walk down the center of the aisle with the ring. It was going to be a huge moment. It was probably going to be the highlight of the ceremony. Um, but unfortunately, before I would enter into the sanctuary, I decided to throw a fit. And I cried, and I cried. And I cried, and I refused to go on. And so they had to do the ceremony without me. Um, I tell you this today, I remember it very vividly, not because I might have ruined the ceremony, I might have ruined my aunt's wedding. No, because I was promised a toy. I was going to get this exact He-Man toy right there. And when I refused to go on, my parents didn't give it to me, but it sat in the top of the cloak closet where I could see it every single day for three months until my mom gave in. So that was my first wedding. But what I'd like to do now is to tell you about the first wedding in the Gospels. And to understand exactly what's going on here, I'm going to return to something that I have mentioned before about the Gospel writers. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're not writing just for the sake of writing a historical narrative. Now they're writing about things that happen, no doubt, but it's almost more like they're, um, they're scrapbooking. It's like they all have these same images, these same stories, these same things that have been laid out, but they have to decide which ones am I gonna include? And what order am I going to put them in? How am I gonna build the little collections of them uh, to, to highlight certain things in the story? So Matthew, with the Sermon on the Mount, he says, I'm going to take all of Jesus's teachings and I'm going to group them together on these couple first pages so everybody knows what he's about to begin with. But then you have somebody like Luke who's like, I'm going to take these teachings and I'm going to interweave them into the stories, so you see Jesus living them out as we're learning them. And then you have John. And John is that overly artistic friend that every friend group has. Uh, He's the individual that about 80% of the time, you know what he's talking about. 20% of the time, he seems to be talking way over you, but you nod so you don't look stupid. Does anybody know who I'm talking about? Uh, In your high school art class, everybody else is making a ceramic bowl. And he's like, yeah, this is a cigarette tray in the shape of the no smoking sign. It's a commentary on society today. Do you know that kid? That's John. John is always doing something a little bit extra, a little bit more, as he's scrapbooking the story of Jesus, as he's putting together his gospel. In fact, when it comes to the miracles, which we're going to read the first of today, he includes seven. He calls them seven signs. Now, obviously, Jesus did more than that. We've seen them throughout the other gospels, but John says, I'm going to include seven of them, because each of them are going to prove a certain point. There's seven times in his gospel that Jesus uses an I am statement. See, John is, he's doing this intentionally. And what I love is how he starts this out. At the end of John 1, we read this verse here. And then he said, I tell you the truth, you will see heaven open and the angels of God going up and down on the Son of Man, the one who is the stairway between heaven and earth. So he sets up this huge thing. like You're going to see heaven and earth connected through Jesus. You're going to see incredible things happen. He's alluding to these miracles, these signs. And knowing the story, we might think that the next thing that we're going to read is uh, Jesus making a, a blind man see or making a lame man walk or bringing back somebody from the dead. Some epic, huge story. But what do we read about? A wedding and Jesus performing a miracle to keep the party going. It feels a little odd, like there's this huge statement, and then this miracle feels so normal, down to earth. The the context of it feels everyday like. And, And there's an author who, in the 50s, was writing about the Gospels, and he has this great line. He says, the Gospels domesticate God. They bring God right into the home circle and the ordinary things of life. What I think John is doing is telling us that, yes, we have this big Savior, this big God, but he's involved in the everyday things like a, like a wedding. And so today, what we're going to do is we're going to take a little time to, to look at that wedding, to look at that first miracle, that first sign, and then ask what it, it might do for us, how it might apply to our lives. And so um, as I researched this story, Dan, this, have you ever had those where you're just like, like little detail after little detail, and you're like, yes, this is, like comes to life, this is one of those. I don't know why I'm telling you this right now, but I'm very excited about this story. So we begin in John 2, verses 1. It says, the next day there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. So we, we get the setting of a wedding. It's in a smaller community. It's not a, a, a big village. Uh, I read one estimate that said there's probably about 50 to 100 people at this event here. And, uh, and there's something we need to know about this event that's gonna make this story make sense. Uh, in a wedding during their time, there were really kind of three main characters uh, that, that played a key role. And that was of course the bride and the groom but also the master of ceremonies. In first century Palestine, hosting was a great honor. It was of the utmost importance. And and how you did as a host was a reflection of how much you cared about the people there, how welcome you wanted them to feel, how honored you wanted the bride and the groom to feel. So if you were chosen as the master of ceremonies, it was a huge responsibility. It, It fell on you to make sure that their relationship started off right. You were in charge. So there was a lot of focus on the master of ceremonies. And one of the most important things that they could do was to make sure that there was going to be enough supplies for everybody. I think back to Thanksgiving when I was growing up. My mom, my aunt, we would go over to my grandma, and I had two great grandmas, and they would all come together. They'd spend the day before and the morning of just cooking and baking and cooking and baking, and there was a whole lot of food In fact, every single year on cue, we would sit down at the table. There was barely enough room for your plates. There were casseroles and dishes and rolls and stuffing and meat, all of it, just all over. And my grandpa would look at it and he would always say, there's enough food here to feed an army. Thank you. Every single year. But I know why my mom and my aunt and my grandma and my great-grandmas did that. They wanted everyone to know that you are welcome. Have as much as you want. That's how important you are to this event. I want you to know that there's no limit to how much you can have. Now, how many of you have ever been in a situation where the opposite was true? Like you're at an event that's been catered and you're in line And you're looking at the line behind you, and you're looking at the table in front of you, and you want two scoops of pasta. You need two scoops of pasta, but you know that there is not enough for you to have two scoops of pasta. Has anyone ever been there before? It's just a horrible feeling. You don't know what to do. And there's nothing worse than having to stop for food on the way home from an event that was supposed to have food. And so you want to avoid that. The host wanted to avoid that. They wanted to make sure that that no matter what, they were going to have enough. And then unfortunately, though, we read this. The wine supply ran out during the festivities. So Jesus's mother told him they have no more wine. So not only have they run out, they've run out of the wine. And if the master of ceremonies has to make this public, it's going to bring a great humiliation onto them, but also this new couple that this couldn't even have been planned right for the number of people that are here. Now, there's a couple reasons it might have happened that scholars have speculated. One is that right before this, we see Jesus recruiting disciples. And then it tells us that those disciples were invited to come to the ceremony. We also know from scholarly research that there's a good chance the disciples were either teenage boys or men in their early 20s. I don't know if you spend any time around teenage boys or men in their early 20s, but when it comes to food and drink, they consume a lot. And so there's a good chance that Jesus bringing along these extra individuals might have caused the wine to to run out a little bit faster. Or it's also quite possible that being a small village in Galilee they just didn't have a lot of money. And they had brought together everything they had and got as much wine as they could. And they just kind of prayed that it would hold out and it would be enough, but, but then it, it wasn't. And so somehow Mary is, is made aware of this. Now we don't exactly know what the connection is between Mary and this wedding. There's actually a writing that comes after the Bible. It's one of the later gospels that wasn't included in the canon. That actually mentions that the bride or the, the groom's mother might have been Mary's sister. In other words, the, the groom was Mary's nephew or Jesus's cousin, and so Mary had a close connection to the event and the master of ceremonies. But however it happened, Mary got pulled aside. Maybe she got drug into the bathroom, the drama meeting place of females at social gatherings. And she was informed that there's no wine. I I don't know what we're going to do. There's no wine. I don't want to have to go public with this. Mary, what are are we going to do that there's no wine? And so Jesus, his mother, goes to Jesus and relays the information to him. Now, I love that Mary does not pose this as a question. She just informs Jesus of the problem. They have no more wine. I think back to those Thanksgivings, and every once in a while, my mom would look at my dad and go, we're out of milk. It's a statement, but it's really more of a command. It's a question with a pre-answer built into it. The implication is my dad is going to go find the one place that's open on Thanksgiving and get milk. And Mary looks at Jesus and says, they're out of wine. Knowing that just maybe he might be able to do something. See, there's, there's also this idea that we don't hear a whole lot about Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, in the Gospels after his childhood. And there's a belief that he might have passed. And if that was the case, Jesus would have stepped up and helped fill a, a fatherly role in that home, taking care of his siblings and even taking care of his mother. There was probably a really intimate relationship that was there. There were probably a lot of evenings where Jesus and his mom sat around and talked and shared and discussed life. And maybe in the midst of those discussions, Mary knew that Jesus had the ability to do something, even though he hadn't done anything like that yet. Or maybe she just had gotten so used to turning to him to help out when things weren't great that that's exactly what she did here. But either way, she comes to Jesus and she says, they have no more wine. And then we have Jesus's response. Dear woman, that's not our problem, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. Now we're going to break down this statement here because this almost sounds a little bit like snarky Jesus. Jesus. And so I want to take a look at what Jesus is saying. There's kind of three little phrases we see here. The first is this dear woman, or if you're reading an old school translation, it just says woman, which never start a sentence like that. There is no context where that is going to turn out well for you. And so I delve into the language that's being used here, and it's actually kind of interesting. It's a polite term but it is also a term that creates a little bit of distance between Jesus and his mother, It removes a little bit of that intimacy there. I think a good modern equivalent would be ma'am. If my mom asked me to do something and I replied to my mom, ma'am, I'm being polite, but I'm also creating some distance there. Because my mom's going back, don't call me ma'am, I am mom, I am mother. But Jesus looks, he says, ma'am, And then he uses what is another common phrase in their day, a phrase that we still use now. That's not my problem. Like, I don't know why you're telling this to me. I am not in charge of this ceremony. That is not my problem. How many of you have ever been informed of a problem and thought that to yourself? I don't know why you're telling me this. The milk is not my problem. But that's what Jesus replies here. But then he follows it with something kind of insightful. He says, my time has not yet come. The actual language, if it was translated a little more literally, it's my hour has not yet come. And Jesus uses that word hour to refer to, well, him going to the cross, being resurrected, offering new life. There's a good chance that Jesus knows that if he were to take care of this problem, He's going to have to do it miraculously. Brown Derby is closed. Like he is not going to be able to go and get enough wine to solve this problem. He is going to have to do it through supernatural means. And that's going to draw attention. And that attention will eventually lead to him going to the cross. We see that in the gospel of Mark. Jesus is all the time performing these miracles. And then he's saying, hey, could you just keep this to yourself for a little while? And we think one of the reasons he's doing that is because he's trying to prolong the amount of time he has to continue to minister because he knows as the word gets out, people are going to get upset and they're going to get so upset it leads to the cross and his time will then have come. And so he tells his mom, my time has not yet come. And I wonder what that moment was like where Mary had approached Jesus with this problem. And then Jesus responds by distancing himself, expressing this is not my problem. And if I solve this problem, it's not going to be good for me. And then Mary just looking at him with the eyes that only a mother can have. Because then she says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. See, Mary does not have an affirmation from Jesus that he is indeed going to solve the problem. She is acting in faith here. She has no idea how he's going to do it, but she knows that it's Jesus. He's always been here for me and he always will. See, Mary doesn't know the how, but she knows the who. And I think that's important for us because sometimes we're going to ask God for something And we're not going to know the how, but we're going to have to know the who, and we're going to have to act in faith. I was reading an interview where a friend of Martin Luther King Jr. was sitting down and talking to someone, and they were asking about his leadership qualities. And in that interview, she said that one of the things that, that he taught me is that you don't have to see the full staircase to take the first step. And we see that being demonstrated by Mary here. She doesn't know what Jesus is going to do, but she expresses this faith by telling the servants, whatever he needs, do it. I, I know he's going to take care of this. And then the next verse tells us standing nearby, there were six stone water jugs used for Jewish ceremonial washing, each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. I think the NIV captures this a little bit better because it tells us just how full they filled them. It says, they filled them to the brim. It goes on, it says, when the jars had been filled, he said, now dip some out and, and take it to the master of the ceremony. So the servants followed his instructions. It says, so when the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though of course the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. A host always serves the best wine first, he said, and then when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine. But you have kept the best until now. Now this had to be really confusing for the groom. Because like he said, the cultural norm was that you would serve the best first. And then when everybody couldn't tell the difference, you brought out the not best. In other words, you would start with this and end with this. You would start with this and end with this. So he was confused by why is the best coming last? I think there's a little bit of a theological hint there that The best is yet to come, that God is not done. God is still moving, and there are still blessings to be had. But but I want to dive in just a little bit further, because I think that there are a few details in this story that give us a clue to exactly why John is telling the story. As one commentary says, John has never wrote an insignificant detail that all of these things that he's including in the scrapbook, he's including for a very particular reason. And you can't tell me that, that John, who doesn't even feel a need to mention whose wedding it is, feels a need to tell us the year, make, and model of the jars that were used. But that's exactly what he does. He tells us that standing nearby, there were six stone jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing, and each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. And I want to take a look at those three details and pull out what I think God is doing there, what John is telling us there. First is the number of jars. He tells us that there are six. Now, John is also doing something over the first couple of chapters. He's actually paralleling his gospel, the beginning of it, with the beginning of the book of Genesis. Genesis begins in the beginning, and then John begins his gospel in the beginning. And over and over in the first chapter of Genesis, we see the phrase, and then the next day, and then the next day. And if you look through the first two chapters of John, you see, and then the next day, and then the next day. In fact, this story started with, and then the next day. He's echoing this idea of creation. And the world was created in six days. Man was created on the sixth day. And there's some imagery here that these jars represent humanity. But they also represent, in Hebrew culture, this idea of something being incomplete. Because there were seven days in the week, and this was only six. And so we have John telling us that there is this incomplete sense of humanity that that is sitting here as part of this story. Then he goes on and he tells us the use of the jars. He tells us that they were usually used for ceremonial washing. And what this would be is that these jars would exist. And when you were going to go into a home or go into a service to be a part of something, you would use the water in these jars to wash your hands and often to to wash your feet. These are not typically the jars you would want to be drinking out of. They were used for cleanliness, ceremonial cleanliness, which was a part of the the Jewish law, the, the older system That Jesus would talk about quite often the system of rules and regulations to make you right with God, to make you pure. So he's not only talking about this incomplete part of humanity. He's also talking about the system of rules and regulations that we use to try to make sure that we're right with God, that we're pure. But then my favorite detail is he tells us the size of the jars. He says that each jar held 20 to 30 gallons. And in a village this size and in a home of this size, there's absolutely no reason for six jars of that size to be present. This would have caught everybody's attention. This is somewhat unheard of. And not only are those six jars of 20 to 30 gallons there, Jesus makes it very clear that they're filled full. They're filled to the brim. And then he turns the water to wine. Why so much? Well, I think one is he was proving that there's no way you can doubt this miracle. This isn't a magic trick with a glass of wine or a bottle of wine. This is substantial. In fact, how substantial? I did the math. This is 120 to 180 gallons of wine. If you're wondering just how much that is, that is 600 to 900 bottles of wine. Now, keep in mind, this gathering is probably 50 to 100 people. Imagine the moment When the master of ceremonies tastes the wine, it's like, oh, this is good. I don't know where you got this, but this is solid. Do you have any more? And the servants are like, yeah, we have 120 gallons out back. 600 bottles if you need it. Let's go back to Thanksgiving. Let's think that my dad did go out and he found a place to get milk. But when he came back, he brought it in. It was one of those little half gallons. Hands it to my mom. And she goes, is this all you got? He's got, no, I've got six pallets in the back. We're going to be good. This is a lot of wine. Why? Because there is no way they would have ever ran out of wine. With this much wine, they would have actually been rich. It's good wine. They could have sold this. God had taken care of them in a way that would never run out. If the wine represents his grace, it was abundant. See, John is telling us that Jesus is making the incomplete complete using the old to do something new and that he will provide endlessly. And that brings me to the question that I want us to ask ourselves as we think about heading into the new year. What are the jars in your life? If you picked up one of the bulletins today, if you flip it over to the front where there's normally a sermon graphic, there's some clip art. Rarely do I use clip art, but you'll see that there are six jars there. And what I want us to do is to take a little time and to think about what six areas of your life might feel incomplete, might need God to do something new, or might need some abundant grace, some riches that never run out. See, I love in this story that Jesus doesn't give them new jars. He just gives new purpose to the old jars. I often hear as we head into a new year, this phrase. I'll see it online on Facebook. New year, new me. It's a lie. Uh, A couple of days ago, I ran into our dishwasher. It had been left open. Hit me in the shin. Left a mark. Woke up this morning. That mark is still there. There was no new me. I was hoping there would be, but there's still a 40-year-old Chris with a mark on his shin from a dishwasher. God is not going to make you into something completely new or make something in your life to something completely new as much as he's going to take your life and the things in your life and do something new. He's going to bring about new creation and resurrection in the old jars. So what I want you to do is I want you to think about what old jars you have. What are the areas of your life? Maybe it's a particular relationship. Maybe it's a particular job. Maybe it's an issue that you're dealing with with one of your children. Maybe it's something that you're wrestling with in your own health or your mental health. Maybe it's something that deals with your finances. But I want you to think, and maybe even fill in the blanks there, are six areas of your life that might feel incomplete, might feel like they need something new, they might feel like they need the abundant grace and riches that God provides that never runs out. See, I believe that John is telling us that Jesus makes the incomplete complete. He uses the old to do something new and that he will provide endlessly. I think that's why John begins this gospel with this miracle. It may not seem to be the most impressive on the outside, but he's talking about doing something inside, inside the jars that gives us hope as we head into a new year, a new phase of our lives. And what better place to start than there? Let's pray. Dear God, I pray for those jars in our life. I pray for those areas where we we feel that something's missing, we feel that something's broken or we feel that something's lacking. I pray that you will fill those jars with water and then turn that water to wine. Do something unbelievable. God, I pray that in three months and six months and a year from now, we are talking about the new things contained in the jars, the new things that you are doing with and in our lives. We need a miracle, God. In Jesus' name, amen.